So that's what I'm saying. The text is like an object. It's gonna change perspective based on where you're standing. I don't know. Hello? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I missed you, baby sweet. It was a day, hmm? It was a day. Please tell me you're seeing this too. From Seattle, we are drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. Oh, hey, Michael. Hey, hey, Taylor. How we doing? We're doing good. This is our, you know, annual Halloween episode. And this is also the first time I've seen you since the month of August. That's right. We did some virtual recordings, but nice to be back doing it live. It is. It's you, a pleasure. You got a little bit sultry on me there. You did a little bit of your NPR voice. I did. I did. Dropped it down low for the for the good microphone. I like to take this seriously, Taylor. Uh, I, I'm sure you do. I do not. Um, in the vein of not taking it seriously, we've got some Halloween titles that are not really Halloween related on retrospect. Um, I think the host and the hunger may be more than the bird with the crystal plumage. I would agree. None of these are terribly spooky, but I feel like, at least among letterboxed users, many use October and Halloween as an excuse to just kind of indulge in some, you know, areas of a genre you might not otherwise explore. I think that's more of what we're doing here. I, I agree. I'm just comparing this to last year's Jennifer's Body, mm. Nosferatu the Vampire, and uh, One Cut of the Dead episode, which mm. I think was a little bit more on Halloween point than, than this one. We're going a little bit more uh, cinephilia. For sure. For sure. I'm with you. Um, to stick to cinephilia, let's go ahead and give David Fincher's Mank a preview. Let's take a look. Mank, it's Orson Welles. Of course it is. I think it's time we talk. What is it the writer says? Tell the story you know. Hello, everyone. Make yourself to home, Mr. Mankowitz, or shall I call you Herman? Please, call me Mank. 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 This is Herman Mankowitz, but we're to call him Mank. Mankowitz? Herman Mankiewicz, New York playwright and drama critic, turned humble screenwriter, Mr. Hearst. This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies. Thunder, light, blood, fire, religion. Help! Someone save me! All in one film. That's director proof. That's why I always want Mank around. I hear you're hunting dangerous game. God bless William Randolph Hearst. All right, we just watched the trailer for David Fincher's Mank coming soon to Netflix and theaters as well. What are your thoughts? There is truly one more great film to come out this year, and it is David Fincher's Mank. That is the beginning of my thoughts. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, I like a movie called Hail Caesar, mm. and there's a little bit of Caesar to be hailed in this one. This is a, what I would call one of the, you know, top 30 living filmmakers today, making a film about making films, specifically classic films. And this is a historical example in a way that Hail Caesar was not, but there's a lot of aloofness, um, there's a little bit of the gaudiness. It's, it's a lot more, you know, pared down and serious. It really reminds me of a lot of the footage that we just saw a couple years ago on the other side of the wind um, in the most complimentary of ways. Um, I'm absolutely thrilled and think that a few cast members in this may end up stealing um, my favorite performances of the year that I've been holding on to since January. I like the optimism. Uh, it strikes me as maybe one of his more Oscar-friendly movies in a while. Probably like the most Oscar-friendly since like Benjamin Button. The movie that actually came to mind was something like The Artist, which is, you know, the kind of movie that has some naturally built-in appeal to cinephiles, but is also a movie about making movies, which is always just something the Oscars and the Academy loves. Um I, I think there's plenty of reason to be 
optimistic. Um, something like The Artist, I think in the long run, hasn't really made much of an impact. I think Dave Fincher is a pretty good director, probably a better director than that director. I don't even remember that guy's name who made The Artist. Um, yeah, I don't know. It feels awfully prestige to me, but uh, yeah, we shall see. I'll take prestige with a drunk. Mm. And like an unflattering view of Hollywood over any other type of prestige any day. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Especially from the director of Alien 3. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. On to News of the World starring Tom Hanks. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Captain Jefferson Kyle Kidd, and I'm here tonight to read the news from across this great world of ours. So they pay you to tell stories. I ain't never heard of that as a thing a man can do. It's not a rich man's occupation, as you can see. Hey! Stop! Stop! I'm not gonna hurt you! Do you understand English? Sorry, I call, but, uh... Friend. Says your name is Johanna Leonberger. Indians took you when they attacked your family six years prior. The mother, father, and sister were. Well, they passed. She's got family down in Castroville. Captain, why are you doing this? She needs to laugh and dream. She needs new memories. All right, Michael, that was the trailer for Paul Greengrass's News of the World, starring Tom Hanks and newcomer Helena Zingler, I think. What do you think? I think this could be skippable for me. This kind of looks like the kind of movie that might just plant itself in Oscar season based on the fact that it has Tom Hanks and it will be released sometime in December, but... I don't know that anything about it strikes me as too terribly interesting. I'm seeing kind of middle-brow, star-driven, western, pretty ordinary direction. Nothing about the art strikes me as too interesting. I think it looks fine, but probably not a must-see based on this first impression. What about you? Well, let me just go ahead and say that it's been a few years Whenever Steven Spielberg last collaborated with Tom Hanks was his last, I think, must-see. And I I genuinely can't remember the last Paul Greengrass must-see. So if that's our measuring stick, then yeah, I I completely agree. Um, But I do think this is one of the better-looking, more engaging plots that Greengrass has touched in the last five or so years since Captain Phillips. Um, What I don't like is the length of the trailer. We have two minutes and 40 seconds here that basically give away the entire structure of the whole narrative. You know that it ends on, at some point, on a mountain shootout. You know that there's um, engagements in these towns. So after he he meets up with her, we know that he's gone like three settled places, thus removing all stakes from the entire journey of the film when they encounter the dust storm and all that stuff. Um, And that stuff really undercuts dramas like this that are supposed to be harrowing. There's no longer anything harrowing. You know that they're going to make it to the shootout, ostensibly. And that removes any sense of urgency from me as the viewer. Yeah, and I don't know that you even get that great of a sense of what the tone and mood of the movie is it's just trailer it's tone and mood movie. i mean it's yeah yeah i mean like you said he's not a director who i'm, I'm that intrigued by like in general um most of his movies are kind of passable for me um they're movies they're fine to watch with family yeah yeah i'm i i expect it to be fine yeah i don't think it's going to be terrible there and she go. looks like a promising uh, up-and-comer. Looked like some good work from her. Yeah. This episode of Drink in the Movies is sponsored by Wild Gallery. 
Wild Gallery is owned and operated by Ray Donnelly. As many small businesses have had to do during COVID, Ray had to shut his physical store doors, but he's maintaining the same high-quality Native American art from the same distinguished artists as before. These are bold pop art pieces from artists that are in the Smithsonian. One of the featured artists had a piece used in David McKenzie's Hell or High Water. Whether you're just looking for a new piece of art to spice up your quarantine life or are shopping for a family member's Christmas present, the distinctive art offered by the Wild Gallery will not only make a memorable gift, but a lasting memory. Visit wild.gallery to find the perfect piece of Native American art for you. That's wild.gallery. You can just peruse or make your purchase today. Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. Providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. We recently joined as members, and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. Uh, but let's get on to Bong Joon-ho's The Host. Let's do it. still alive. Why didn't you contact the police or the military, a human rights organization, something? All right, Michael, this is a film about a creature that comes out of the Han River. We believe that it was driven out of the Han River potentially by an overdumping of formaldehyde from an American forces unit there in what capacity i don't know um but this is kind of a topical film it's about um quarantining and you know a a virus although in this one the virus does turn out to be a hoax that's correct we've talked about watching this movie for a long time in hopes of talking about it on the show but the timing actually worked out quite well ultimately It, it is a very covid friendly film uh, it came out in 2006. This is from Bong Joon-ho. I love this movie. I had a great time with it. Um, where are you at overall on this one? I thought that the beginning was sloppy. Wow. Okay. Okay. I, I really did not like the char- the the creature design in the beginning. I thought that they were doing a, a pretty poor job of the CG. I know it's 2006. I completely turn around on that in the ending. I think the last third is a very, very sharp, really good lighting, great use of um, timing the sound effects of the the moisture, um, especially when he, or whatever you want to call it, when the host is, is dropping um, like objects like bones and people, the, mm. the cogent sound effects there. And when a foot, is is slowly slurping up from the cement. That's where they really make that CG sing. I think in the beginning, that like large group interaction where the creature like knocks over a trailer and stuff, it, it mm. just didn't feel stakes-y. It didn't mm. feel tangible to me. And then it's slowly built there. Yeah, it is night and day different from the look of, say, Okja. The pig, mm-hmm. actually, the pig named Okja in Okja, which is like photorealistic. It's so clean. Like, I think if this movie was made in 2020, it would look way better. Um, I, I end up thinking it doesn't look bad at the end. Okay. Personally. Come around to the yeah. design overall. Yeah. Um, yeah. I thought the beginning, the creature design aside or the quality of the CGI aside, I thought the set pieces were super strong and fun and 
just night and day different from the kind of American action movie that someone like Paul Greengrass, who we were just talking about, likes to make, which is fast cutting, the kind of action that gives you chaos through some really frenetic editing. You know, Bong takes these long shots and it's fluid. He follows the motion as this monster leaps ashore and is chasing people down. It's a big spectacle set piece. I think it's really strong fluid filmmaking. I thought that stuff was great. Yeah, I I think that specifically he's very tonally effective here. He can, like you said, have have a steady long shot. But what he can do with the CG here is have, it's really interesting, he has steady long shots where the mood of his actors change as they begin to notice um, the CG creature. They're looking directly where they need to be looking. And then the, the water say erupts and it might look a little bit absurd in how high the water erupts based Mm. on the actual speed at which the creature is going but they'll insert the creature into the real um the real world through animation above the water we'll say or from behind a corner and now they're in frame in line of sight to the actor in a steady shot and the actor is looking directly where they need to look and exhibiting all the right stuff. Like, the, this is not just good filmmaking from Bong or, or good direction from Bong. This is really, really top-tier CG interacting performances from these actors. Like, this is better than a lot of the Avengers stuff, you know, mm-hmm. where they're looking at the wrong tennis ball. And you can yeah, tell. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think one of my favorite shots in the movie is right after the monster leaps on shore for the first time and you see Sung Kang Ho looking down this park and you see his expression first and then you see the monster bounding towards him. And yeah, the CGI might, you know, be such that you don't believe it's totally part of this world, but when that drum score starts pounding with each planting of the monster's feet, that does bring it into the world for me. I think that's an awesome shot and sequence i yeah i agree there's there's so much more to love after the i I think that the last third of this movie is just one of the best pre-2010 pieces of cgi film that i've just ever seen because there's all the stakes are established you're no longer expounding on um your exposition there's there's real stakes. There's a, a drill being bored into a mm-hmm. head. There's um, bones that are in the in the sewer that you hear the clanking of. There's a, a young child being taken care of by this daughter. Um, the father has died. Like there's it's just so engrossing, and there's such high stakes because the world is actually there to kill you, which is very rare in these films that you don't end up caring about these horror side characters and i there's something very interesting about how south korean film in in general which i'm very narrowly exposed to will say manages to create stakes in groups and has you believe that they might not all die whereas in Mm. america it's just like okay this is a slasher everyone's gonna die i don't care totally yeah you're just waiting for dominoes to fall where the dominoes are people Mm -hmm. in american thrillers oftentimes yeah for sure yeah it's you know, I think some of the things that stand out are the same things that stand out in something like Parasite, where like just as you were describing how the family unit is a major part of the the film itself. And there's real pathos, I think, from how he uh, kind of establishes all the different family dynamics within this just kind of blockbuster thriller vehicle. Um and there's a real kind of disinterest in subtlety for me. Like, within two minutes, as you already described, this American military guy is talking about polluting the Han River. We know there are going to be consequences. We know exactly what Bong is interested in here. Um, and and he gets away with it just because of the strength of the filmmaking, just the robustness of it. Um, and then, again, with something like Parasite, it's just those tonal shifts from moments where the family is just wailing because they think they've lost the youngest girl and then the next minute they're like falling backwards as they're crying you don't really know whether to laugh or be just shocked at their grief um that's just again distinctly korean to me this kind Mm. of openness to tones you think would clash that he makes work 
I yeah, that's a great way to put it. Tones you think that would clash, but they work. Um, there is a few like little charming decisions he makes as a filmmaker. I think that one of them that, that's really key is the use of the set decoration in um, the quarantining of these individuals that have been exposed to the pathogen. Um, when they're inside this hospital, there's this visqueen tarp. And it actually makes absolutely no sense at all. Because it's not quarantining anybody because there's other people on the on the other side of it that are exposed, exposing themselves. But they they use it as like this or he uses it as this layering to the storytelling and to like focus on someone. And he has it like loose and double layered. And then at a critical moment, it they pull it straight and and pull it tight against um, one of our main characters faces as he he's saying something there's just such great use of the extra little bits and lighting them properly to convey clarity and fuzziness um there's another great sequence where an american is giving the classified breakdown that we haven't found any virus in anyone and he is about to he's he's been um told that he's insane and he's about to get drilled in the head and he looks over and he's the most sober guy in the room knows where it is knows everything that's going on and he says there's no virus and then they look at him like how did you hear us you're insane it's just it's so tonally magnificent oh yeah the filmmaking oh my gosh it's hilarious in the moment. Yeah. There, there's, he's so sure that this guy just can't follow English, I guess. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, so funny the way, I think that song King Ho, the way he plays that is just great. And, yeah, I totally agree about the, the production design and the look of that. When, I like in that same scene, you know, so much of this movie is kind of yellow and green. That's, you know, it's a green fish monster. There's kind of a yellowish tint to a lot of the cinematography, but went through in that room where he's about to get this head surgery or whatever it is they're actually going to do to him. A lobotomy. A lobotomy. lobotomy. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, They're all wearing, you know, these stark white lab coats and there's that overhead shot as he's just about to get drilled, but the floor is like bright red. It's the brightest red, the only like real red in the whole movie. It just looks like you're suddenly in this different, um, horror movie altogether. Hmm. Um, uh, which just looks great. Like it's just a nice composition. It's a good looking movie. Oftentimes, yeah. I, I just remembered that the the preceding moment to his lobotomy was when he just did not allow the anesthetic to work, mm. <laughs> and they were just gouging into his shoulder to get a tissue sample. Oh my goodness! Yeah, the, this movie is a horror comedy, um, but mm-hmm. it's also you know an environmental conversation film. Um, I think that there's a lot to the material that I that's a little bit above my head. I have very, very, very poor familiarity with what occurred during the Korean War. And from mm-hmm. what I gather, there might be a very high significance to what happened during the Korean War as far as what America used with with agents um biological chemical warfare and the long-lasting effects of that in the korean peninsula that i just have zero clue about yeah it is like abundantly clear that bong is cognizant of the consequences of pollution right and just being careless with the environment totally with you for me it's a little less clear what exactly his attitude is towards like American influence in Korea. I just I don't have the, the context for that either, but it seems obvious that that is a major point of interest mm-hmm. throughout the film. Um, yeah, it's not subtle. It, it's interesting to see a film that I would assume was made about 15 years ago with such profound use of masks and just where we're at today. And it's just, it's so passively fascinating to me that, you know, on a different continent, it was perceived as normal and like, if you would have told me when I was growing up in the 90s that this was a thing, like, I just would not have understood or comprehended it, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm just imagining watching this in a theater today in 
times of COVID and that scene where it's just some random people on a sidewalk and a guy coughs, pulls down his mask and spits <laughs> into a puddle and then a car drives by and splashes it and they all just yeah, all go, 30 oh of them. God, and you can imagine how a audience would respond to that today mm-hmm. because i don't we know how are, i oh, responded no. yeah viscerally <laughs> yeah i leaned back in my seat i was like oh no yeah totally um, yeah that it's it's totally just genius i it's straddling real scares like actual scares where i'm getting you, you know a little bit scared to a lot scared very briefly i think there's only like two times that you really get scared as the an audience member but there's constant sense of trepidation worry and then all of a sudden you're inside of like a a building that flips sideways and you don't really Mm. expect that to occur um i think that yeah that that happens somewhere in in the middle part of the movie um yeah bong is is a very very good filmmaker and it seems like he's been that way for a really long time (laughs) i agree 100 percent uh favorite scene favorite shots favorite aspects that is a tough one my favorite scene it's it's kind of a joke scene um it's it's gonna stick with me when someone brings up the host i'm probably just gonna remember this scene the most and that's when um the little girl is talking to the little boy and about food and then he asks her what she wants and she said a beer a cold Mm. beer and then the next time the host shows up, or whatever you want to call that creature, he uh, he vomits up all those bones, and a beer pops out, and it cracks open, and it starts fizzing. Um, and it's just, it's so comedically funny, and it's in the middle of all this dead, you know, material. It's, it's mm-hmm. a very interesting uh, shot. I really like that one. How about you? It's hard not to go with the opening set piece when we first see the monster jump ashore i do really love that but just to mention a different one which we haven't already talked about there's that little imaginary sequence where the family is sitting around the table having dinner and they each kind of imagine the youngest daughter being there with them as they're Mm -hmm. having dinner um just again that uh you know, just emotional kind of core within this family unit that Bong is just as talented at getting into the movie as all the action. Nice, nice stuff. Proficient filmmaking. On to The Hunger from Tony Scott. And life signs terminate right here. <laughs> timeless beauty of Catherine Deneuve, the cruel elegance of David Bowie, the open sensuality of Susan Sarandon, combined to create a modern classic of perverse fear. Mysterious, sensual, strange, perverse, riveting. The Hunger. All right, Michael. I gather this was not your favorite film of her Halloween lineup? I think that's correct. I like it. I had a good time with it, but probably the my third favorite of our three titles today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it depends on how you measure directorial debuts. I have this like personal preference where it's, if it's under 70 minutes, it's not a film to me. Um, Tony had made a 23 minute short film and a 51 minute short film, I believe preceding this. This was his first one that hit that, you know, BS marker that I have of 70 minutes, 70 minutes or more. You have a feature film. That's how I view it. And this is 93, I want to say. So to me, this is a directorial debut. I think it's incredibly just well put together from a 
an imagination standpoint. Like, he really must have storyboarded all of his imagery. He got the staircase. It's crucial to the ending and the beginning nicely. He didn't hit us over the head with it. Um, he has that wonderful, dazzling, frenetic sequence that I think is one of the most interesting opening shots or opening portions where um, there's the music being played and then the monkey committing murder and drinking the blood. It's just, I really, really love that sequence. Very cool intro. It is like aggressively stylized. There's this intense kind of cross-cutting across those three mm-hmm. scenes all playing out at once. That is cool. You don't really know what's happening at that point. You're just... Uh, the imagery is just kind of washing over you and it's just cool musically driven pure style kind of at that point mm-hmm. and that's stuff and that stuff is great and I think the style of the movie is pretty strong I felt this movie just wanting me to engage more with the drama of it than I ultimately really was able to get involved with um, we have Susan Sarandon we have Catherine Deneuve Along with David Bowie. Um, I like what all of them are doing. I don't know why. I just felt like this movie was supposed to be more dramatically engaging than it was. But I appreciated the style and some of the formal aspects that we can chat about. Yeah, I'm... I I probably agree with you on a fair amount of stuff. I'm just probably a little bit more charitable at how I interpreted it. Um, you, You can't really think about this movie, if you're familiar with the show, and not think about the interview with the vampire right like mm. there's the the billowiness there's mm-hmm. the the really sumptuous framing really really good filmmaking on display and then like what do i want to do with the story right interview with the vampire is like way too absurd over the head of a story and this is like not giving enough for probably a lot of people what exactly is occurring what the background is here um, and then at the end, you know, it's all about, are you on board already? Because if you're not, when all those coffins get opened, you're going to think that this is one stupid movie. Yeah, that's not going to, like, lead anyone to do a 180 who was yeah. not up, not down with the movie up until that point, I would agree. Uh, yeah, Interview with the Vampire seems like a good point of comparison because that has a real campy factor to mm-hmm. it. And I hadn't really, that word hadn't even really come to mind in the context of the hunger but it maybe is kind of hard to make a vampire movie like this without some degree of camp just because Mm -hmm. there is something over the top about immortality and the combination of eternal life with sexual hunger like that is just kind of an extravagant idea that you're that you're working with um but there's just kind of the cool factor here that's very appealing the sunglasses the fashion the 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 look of it all um i think some very very superb early makeup work as well Mm, i think this 1980s makeup work that they do on david bowie is really really just worth great notice yeah yeah these scenes where he's aging like by years in a matter of of minutes or something like that he's kind of unrecognizable by the end of that sequence Mm um you know yeah, it's kind of bold to... Uh, he maintains believability. Yeah. Um, that, just a quick aside, I, I just watched this truly horrible film from Robert Zemeckis called The Witches, right? And this has all the budget and CGI and, and the agelessness that, that you could want. And it's just awful. It looks terrible. Everything about it is just bad. And it, I watched it in very recent memory with The Hunger, and I'm just thinking like, what you can do with practical effects supersedes so greatly CG in, in certain contexts. We just talked about the host. You had to do that monster as CG, but they do so much practical work to make it all, all work together. I think here, if you are on board, the practical work that, that Tony has in the film in conjunction with the sumptuous lighting, the gorgeous framing really interesting glasswork in brief moments. I, I really think that this film shows a auteur in his very early years. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, it might just be that it kind of didn't match my expectations when you have someone like Susan Sarandon, who I just don't really associate with movies that are kind of pure exercises in style. I just assumed there was going to be a little bit more like 
dimensionality or meaning to these characters. Mm. So maybe I just, it just didn't line up with what I thought I was getting into. And on a different day, I would just eat this up because of what it is doing, yeah. you know, style-wise. I, this was not what I thought it would be either. <clears throat> and to be honest, I don't know that I ever have enjoyed Susan Sarandon in a film. Me neither, to I, be honest. I don't think that I care for her performing style. Um, but she didn't get in the way here. I mean, it's kind of like believing Denise Richards is a nuclear physicist in 007. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, if, if that's what sure. we're doing. But, like, I'm more intrigued by carrying dying David Bowie up the stairs and setting him in the middle of that just beautifully lit, billowing, um, sh- wonderfully shadowed uh, attic where where the... The dome has that great light. Oh, man. There's just so much visually appealing here that I overlook kind of the middle three fifths. You know, Mm. it's like the first fifth and the last fifth are so awesome to me. I really like that end sequence. And the middle is just so fine that Mm. I can overlook it all. But I totally get not wanting to be on board for the, uh, the absurdness of this film. Yeah, I think the ending is probably the most Halloween-ish moment mm-hmm. of any of the movies we're talking about today. That is just pure, you know, dead people walking around. That's spooky stuff. That's yeah. good stuff. Yeah, uh, it, if you're bought into it, right? For sure. But I, I think that, like, there's a, a brief moment where she's terrified and she throws a fist and the chin crumbles and continues to crumble and, like, the body crumbles after it falls. That's just so... Great. I mean, we're talking about fifth, no, 40 years ago now. Special effects from 40 years ago, practical effects of a body dissolving from being hit because it's it's an old, you know, raised living dead, whatever they call it. Yeah. Um, I, I can't remember the exact term that was written. Yeah, I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, yeah, maybe my lack of a respect. Of a, of a response was partly due to the fact that it felt like it had stuff that it could have dug deeper into. You know, there are these kind of ideas thrown out there about aging and immortality and sexual hunger. Mm-hmm. And it does feel like those ideas are kind of presented, but then ultimately kind of left on the table because it's a little just more interested in style than ideas. So maybe it was just that it felt like it was at its fingertips and it didn't quite engage with those things. Um, that is what led me to experience a little bit of frustration. Um, but yeah, just a thought. Yeah. I, I have almost zero familiarity with the book, so I, I don't know if the book was going to go down that rabbit hole or not. And this definitely feels like someone kind of optioned the narrative and then really just made a stylized debut film with two A-listers. I, I mean, I guess Susan Sarandon's probably an A-lister too, but you get David Bowie in a movie and Catherine Deneuve in a movie in the early 80s. That sounds like a promising debut. Yeah, I did not even realize that that was that it was based on a book. That actually makes a lot of sense that he saw that and was like, I'm just going to exploit this for its visual potential. And yeah. that he does, for sure. Um, you know, he... As a directorial debut, he goes on to make Next. Is it Top Gun's Next? I don't know. That seems roughly correct. I think it's Top Gun and then like Beverly Hills Cop 2 and then Days of Thunder. And then, you know, like it's just hit after hit after hit. I think this um, in Tony's filmography is maybe his most experimental and, Mm. you know, most kind of absurd and whimsical film in, in some ways. I, I'm not as familiar with this filmography as I'd like to be. And I'd love to program a classic episode next year just around doing some Tony Scott homework. Beverly Hills Cop 2, one of his more recent ones, one in the middle. Yeah, I feel like he is a director who many cinephiles really love, even some of his later works. Like, didn't he do I mean, Man on Fire. Man on Fire, yeah, the Denzel Washington one, <clears throat> yeah, right? Yeah, I think I saw that way Dakota back in the Fanny, day. Yeah, yeah, the cigar cutter with the with the hands Ooh. taped to the steering wheel. That's Slow, more detail than I can remember. Slowly cutting those fingers off with that cigar cutter. Oh, it's a brutal scene, dude. Yeah, he he is one of those directors who seems you know to be making kind of uh, 
you know, pop movies that certain cinephiles really respond to. And I've always kind of just watched from a distance that people praise these and, and have kind of wondered what it is about these some of these later movies that people really dig. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I was just wondering that about Unstoppable myself, like mm-hmm. yesterday, going through his filmography. I was like, why do I write this film off? Because I, mm-hmm. I mean, I look at the cover and I know why I write it off. I just assume Liam totally. is some trash. And then go, I mean, there's Chris Pine in that movie, I think. And like, it, I, I don't know. I, I want to go back and revisit it. That's for sure. But um, back to The Hunger. What do you think of David Bowie's performance? I'm a little mixed on David Bowie, to be honest. You know, I'm sensitive to smugness. I don't know why he just strikes me as a little smug. This is totally a personal reaction. I don't think I have any great evidence for this. It's just a gut feeling that, like, I wish there was, like, more vulnerability to him or something like that. I don't know why I find him not very approachable, I guess. I don't know. That's just my uh, personal dump of thoughts about David Bowie. What about you? So, I mean, more than just this film, he's always felt like he's impersonating someone to me. Mm. Like, he's an imposter impersonating someone else. He's not really himself being vulnerable as himself. Mm. Um, And sometimes that's really fun and charming in The Labyrinth. Mm -hmm. But here... I just, yeah, there's something about it where it, it works and it doesn't work. Like, I, in the classical sense of a performance, I don't think it works. But in the sense of the, the tone and the, you know, timelessness of the character that we're supposed to believe that he has from the 1700s or whatever, I can kind of buy into his like aloofness and otherworldliness as a vampire who's subservient to this other vampire. And I don't understand the logistics of which Ankh is which and how she's draining her younger vampire of its life essence so that she doesn't age and that once they touch her, she ages. Like, I don't get the ins and outs of that, but there's something... Yeah, there's something there where it both works and doesn't work, and that's the mouth noises that I can make about that. Yeah, I I was curious if we were going to get into plot or not, because I do not understand the plot of this movie, and I thought that maybe that was just me, that I just, like, was missing obvious stuff. But how exactly the vampirism in this movie works between characters was similarly a little lost on me, but I was fine with that. It's something to do with necklaces? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, but why, how exactly Deneuve has managed to not stay, or not age where David Bowie is aging? What what suddenly accelerates his aging? I wasn't sure. Has he just not eaten? Uh, I don't know. I felt like I was just missing something No, because he here. had eaten. Right? It opens on him eating. Right? I don't know what the problem is. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a repetitive problem because Catherine Deneuve has all those freaking coffins in her attic. True. I think she's just cycling through. So I think that there's like, well, I think that she's draining them of their life force. So like she makes them a vampire in service to her. So they get to live a little bit longer, but not forever. Mm -hmm. And I think that she wanted Susan Sarandon to like solve the problem of living forever for both of them. Mm. But Susan was like, fuck that. I'm going to kill myself. Apparently. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Some plot details were lost on me, but that was okay. Um, How about Deneuve? I thought Deneuve was very cool. Very down with what she's doing here. What about you? Completely agree. She's she's smooth and suave. That accent really gives you a lot of leeway with the bullshit mm-hmm. of the screenplay, I think. With the words that she has to say, being able to barely understand them at some level is, is very um, useful and... and just kind of bringing me in and making me lean forward in my seat and I just have to buy in because I'm, I'm barely keeping up. So I'm, I'm buying in just cause I don't have time to question. I think that that ends up working. Yeah. Yeah. To her, there's definitely this kind of mystique that's very alluring, which is just so different sensibility wise from Susan Sarandon, who I just associate with like middle brown movies, like Stepmom with Julia mm-hmm. Roberts. So the two of them together is like this Total contrast of um, actresses because I just yeah, have she's such a, different she's impressions just such of them. Such an over actor to me. 
Susan Sarandon. Yeah, like she's a person mm. saying things. She's not a person, like an actor becoming someone else. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, the cool factor that Deneuve has here is many times that of Sarandon. Um, th- there is one specific set piece that just does not work for me. It just looks, it, it doesn't look right in the mm. context of the film. And that is the um, the funerary furnace. Oh, yeah, where they dump bodies, Yeah, I think. where they immolate the bodies. Like, it just, it it feels so clearly like they're in a totally different location. They're using, he's using totally different camera angles than he's used before. It's lit poorly. Mm. Um, they're, they're using the handle as, like, this this meaningful thing that they're mm. always grabbing onto. I, I don't know. That just didn't work. Did you get a sense for, for that? I'd have to go back and watch that to see if I felt the same way. I could, I could certainly see that. Generally speaking, I do like the look of the movie and just how this kind of blue sheen that's over most of the movie. It's a very blue movie. Um, and then when someone does die and some blood finally comes out, there's just this awesome contrast between the blue and the color of, of the blood mm-hmm. itself, which just looks awesome. Um so I'd have to go back and look at that specifically to see how I react. I doubt you will. Probably not. Do you have a favorite scene? <laughs> I kind of feel like you're picking between either the beginning or the end. It, I, that's how I feel. Those are the highlights of the movie there's, for me. There's a specific scene in the middle that I've already mm. mentioned. Which one is that? That is the one where she carries David Bowie to the attic. Ah, uh, gotcha, gotcha. That's your favorite? Or the highlight of the middle. I, I think that is the, the highlight single take. But I mean Got that it. that introduction is one of the most frenetic, interesting, engaging pieces of cinema I've seen from the eighties. I so I, I have to go with that beginning. Got it. I would probably go with the ending. It just feels like it really goes for broke with that finish. Finally, all these people coming out of their coffins. It just feels like it really goes for it. I can appreciate that. Yeah, it's a very on-point Halloween pick. Yeah, totally. All right, on to Bird with the Crystal Plumage from Dario Argento. This is a film that came out in the 70s, I think. This one came out in 1970. 1970. I was thinking 73. Um, It is a little bit dubbed. I don't know Mm. if you noticed, like most Italian films where I couldn't help but have a little flashback to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood there. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. What do you think about this um, caper? I enjoyed this movie. This is Dario Argento's debut film. Uh, It seems like he knew right from the get-go the kind of movie he wanted to make. This seems to kind of set the template for the giallo slashers he would make for the rest of his career, or or many of them that he would go on to make. Um, Much more about just kind of mood and tone for me than the not so eloquently written screenplay, but I think there is some fun stuff here. What about you? Yeah, I think I agree with those sentiments. Um, Yeah, I I don't know why, but I found this film charming. Mm. And I just kept leaning in when... I normally don't in these Giallo films. Mm. You've seen a few with me, and Mm -hmm. I normally am on the total other side. But the kind of quaintness, the charm to the this very poor, at least at the beginning, dubbing. I think that by the middle, I got used to it. But in the beginning, it was very rough. It was out of sync by about a half a second. Um, just the level of absurdness of a, a American who's very clearly, like, not American. Mm. Um, having his passport taken, becoming a detective... Um, having art be the central piece of the film itself, um, the foreshadowing of the wall of knives, 
um, mm-hmm. this this crucial painting, um, eating of cats. Like, there's just there's so much to this dang movie. <laughs> yeah, th- there's just some really curious detail within this story, like the police as they're hunting down this serial killer that's on the loose. There's these scenes where they are working with these machines that they think they're computers, essentially, that they think is somehow going to like spit out information about who the killer might be. I was like, what, what is this? This feels like it's in a different movie or something like that, but it is charming in some way, just because it's so kind of odd. It's just, it just is so curious and even being there. Um, I think about towards the end where our main character's girlfriend is being uh, attacked by the serial killer mm-hmm. and she's locked in her bedroom and she's trying to get out. She's obviously not, not able to go out the front door because that's where the killer is. And partway through her effort to escape, she just collapses and like lays down on the floor and starts crying. And it's like, what are you doing? Keep going. <laughs> yeah. There's just something about... You're talking about when she trips running to the bathroom because she noticed a window there. Oh, did she trip? Maybe... Okay, maybe yeah, I misremembered. She trips and then she doesn't get up for a while. And then she does and she opens the window and there's bars there and she clutches onto them and screams in agony. Yeah. Uh, it's it's amusing stuff. Yeah. Um, how about when she goes to stab the hole that's drilled into the door? Oh, yeah. Just bottoms out on the, the door itself and then stabs back in there. I I mean, the way that he's shooting those scenes, I, I mean, specifically the, the physical moments of, of what people's hands are doing, I, I think that's what ends up making the film pulse a little bit and, and mm. bring you in because he, he is focusing on that viscera or the the idea of the possibility of viscera in those ways. And then when we actually get to those slasher moments, it's just really absurd chopping back and forth with like just someone slicing at the camera lens Mm -hmm. and then looking at the girl screaming, putting her hands up who has no wounds at all, but there's blood on her shirt, which is, you know, like a foot under where her arms are that are blocked. Like there's just something charming to the stupidity of it. Mm -hmm. Um, that I'm, yeah, I don't know. I end up really liking this movie and I don't quite know why. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think Ennio uh, Morricone did the score. Yeah, I think how about very cool. that for a directorial debut? Very cool stuff. I think the score does a lot. You know, whenever it cuts to the painting, which looks like a Bruegel painting, but there's a murder happening in the foreground of the painting. That's when the score really comes in. You hear those like children's voices singing these la la la's. Mm-hmm. Like, that, that's just great, you know, detail. Um, I think this, I think the score is pretty cool. It does a lot for it. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that you come to these for, you know, the meatiness of the themes, right? Um, I didn't. I came to it because it was a Dario Argento movie that that was a little bit Halloween related. And Mm. I stayed because of the name of the movie not yet occurring Mm -hmm. and the minuscule joys that occur along the way, whether it's a chase scene through a bus yard that is just so interestingly edited and so abstractly stupid that it's just fascinating. Or the sequence where the artist throws a ladder out of the, the roof of a barn. That whole sequence is so weird. Right. Like, there's there's just stuff here that is so intriguing and pulling and also so, so dumb. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would agree. Well said. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what else... Uh, what else to say? Uh, other thoughts? I, I mean, we can talk about <laughs> the plot in general. <laughs> it, it begins with him observing an attempted murder, and um, a hooded figure runs away, and there's a woman on the floor with blood on her, um, and he's trapped between these two soundproof pieces of glass mirror that I think are just a brilliant way to start a film. Um it's a really engaging foreshadow for the the finish that you don't 
really see coming at all. I don't know about you, but I, it didn't occur to me. Um, I, I thought it was really well pulled off coming back into that same area for that last encounter. Um, that's just the introduction of the film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that just leads me to a, a, a slightly different kind of thought, but it's about how I think sometimes horror movies like this are sometimes better judged by how we think they will play like decades after they come out versus right off the bat where sometimes they're just too fresh and something about horror seems to really benefit from age in a way. Um more so than other genres, like if they're—I well, don't even know if I'd call this horror. It's true. Yeah, um, I, I guess it's thriller. Um, yeah, that's. I mean, I I don't know of a genre that fits. I'll put it that mm. way. I think that you're right. It, it is thrilling. It has moments of chase that are thrilling and exciting, but it's um, yeah, it's it's like comparing one painting to another paint. Like this painting is not the same as that other one, and I don't know. I don't know which one it is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it, it's it's cool to just kind of think about, I don't really know the history of Giallo before Argento, but just to think about the influence of this kind of thing on so many slashers to come all the way up through stuff like Scream, where you get some of those same kinds of POV shots um, or the opening of, you know, some of those De Palma movies. What's the one that starts off with that? Uh, POV shot of oh, the, the woman, something. Woman. Yeah, I can't remember if that was dressed to kill or yes. was it blow up? I can't remember. It, was it might have been to kill. Dressed, dressed to, to kill, kill has that that murder scene with the elevator, and yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, there, there's some satisfaction to be had in just seeing, you know, s- s- sort of the the origins of some of those tropes in in something like this. Yeah, I guess I wasn't aware that Dario started that stuff. Is that true? I could be making that up. I should say that this is some of the earliest um, I have seen some of these like slasher kind of okay, tropes me too. played out. Me too. Yeah, that that is where it's contextually interesting, right? Like, there's there's a lot of I meant to bring this up with with Tony um, as well. Is there's there's a lot of Hitchcock stealing occurring mm. here. There's you know directly attacking the camera. There was the um, sequence in The Hunger where there's the, um, is it the doves in that crucial mm, violent mm-hmm. scene? And she's she's running and it, there's, um, there's that great editing that was reminiscent of Psycho in the bathtub in the beginning of The Hunger. I think that both these films are kind of leaning on some filmmaking and some craftsmanship for editing that Hitchcock did and how to make a picture and to use the camera to attack the viewer rather than the character in the film and get kind of double the benefit of they know who's on the other side of the camera, but they're the one getting attacked, which which puts them in a different frame of mind that I, I think is really um, ingenuitive that they're, they're leaning on that and kind of trying to take it to their own place. Yeah, Hitchcock is a great person to bring up because, yeah, Psycho is obviously before this and yeah how is the shower scene not like the original kind of slasher moment Mm -hmm. um yeah that makes a lot of sense um yeah i I don't know that i have too much more on this one there's just a lot of intriguing moments whether it's the the slow panning up to the third window Mm. um and just kind of the significance of the way that he draws you there with that close-up um, there's some great street light shadow work, um, done during those chase scenes. Um, there's, you know, just the absurdness of running around in that bus lot and never, ever, not even once thinking about getting underneath a bus. That's mm-hmm. just, it's so, it's so quaint and also so moronic. <laughs> yeah, quite, yeah. Totally. Um, yeah, some of those just classic kind of giallo trademarks, like right off the bat, I think one of the first things we see is the killer sort of looking at his collection of knives and stuff, and he's then putting them into that like crunching leather coat mm-hmm. with the hat, you know, that's that just feels like pure giallo. Um, it's fun stuff. Yeah, the, the leather is crucial. It's mm-hmm. on display here as well. Um, 
some some good little quality cars um mm. nice little taxi interactions yeah what's your favorite scene uh what is my favorite scene i my well my mind is going to the opening murder you talked about it him getting locked between those two glass doors that is a pretty great way to kick off this story of this reporter feeling like he is caught and can't move on until he solves this case that is just a nice little metaphor for the position he's about to find himself in um what about you give you two what you got the first one is when he goes into the room where he thinks the killer is and finds his friend that he gave the reel to Mm -hmm. holding a knife and pulls on the knife in some way and ends up having the dead body collapse on top of him Mm. with the knife in its back. He has the knife in his hand. Then she walks forward out of the darkness and subsequently runs. It's just a, it's a really lush looking scene and kind of a sea of not so lush. Mm -hmm. Um, And lastly, the crucial scene where there is the bird with the crystal plumage Mm -hmm. and we get that tight close-up that ends up going through the feathers of the bird through the cage to the wall panning slowly up to that third window it's just a great scene great shot bold to put the uh the final key to solving the mystery in the title of the movie i love it i love it well happy halloween happy halloween I'm coming with you. That was brilliant. You're the best and we love you! And that's another one in the can.